You are listening to Barrett Digital Episode 2, airing first on Radio Alhara. The following episode features a pair of poets deeply significant to us here at Barakman. They are role models in their many fields, arts, poetics, revolutionary activism, community, literature, and media. The audiobook featuring their poems can be found on the Barakman website and other partner platforms. Visit the site to learn more. Digital Episode 2. Herefore, the descendants. So I'm Lisa Lux, or more commonly known as Lux. Hi, my name is Dana Ash. I consider myself uh, an intersectional feminist, a cultural activist, writer, and I guess a lot of people consider me the founder and executive director of Haven for Artists. I'm a writer, a poet. I write theater and essay and books. And I am also part of Palestine Action, a network in the UK um, that are dismantling the Israeli arms trade, uh, are the roots of where it has set in England. So I, I create work between uh, social movements and literature. Um, there are different things that I can create to say, like to introduce myself. You, know, you could be a writer, you could be an activist. Um, I guess at this point, it's um, being able to merge the two and trying to find where really they can serve one another and be able to kind of be the launching pads for something better, or at least for some kind of justice. How, how does it feel to to come together and to work on uh, a new piece? There was a physical response I just had when you were saying that, which is I just noticed myself smiling, the smile <laughs> that I get. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it was... Uh... Um, how it feels for me is... Uh, Strangely nostalgic. Maybe it'd be interesting to also hear about the process that we've actually been talking about and what you plan on sharing with us today and how you are going to design the piece mm. that we will eventually hear. I actually feel like what you guys have given us is a playground. Uh, and I feel like I'm stepping into this playground and I'm almost trying to remember how to use the swing. A little bit, <laughs> uh, or I'm trying to, or I'm trying to approach it differently. Like I'm trying to stand on it with my head rather than put my legs through it, just to see what happens. And I say that as a blessing because having, um, you know, a publishing house and a network who encourage the radical artist, and part of that being the process of which that radical voice is then platformed, um, and also it being experimentation is a breath of fresh air and also can be quite frightening <laughs> because you suddenly have to put down the tools that you've been using for a while and start to, uh, you don't have to, but it's a, it's a welcome opportunity to uh, come at it, come at it fresh. So I've been uh, thinking a lot about conversations that me and Dana had and that me and Dana had with you last time that we spoke, Danny, and uh, we were talking a lot. Uh, we're talking about a lot of things because that's what we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> But there were some things in particular that, that I, I really wanted to carry forward, which was notions of how we break colonial dominant languages with poetry. Like what is poetry's role in the disruption of linguistic borders? Because so, so much of a border is in its linguistics because policies and constitutions are written in a colonial dominant language so that other indigenous tongues are then stamped out. So language is... I've got, a, I've got a line in something that I've written, which is, if you are reading, you are reading a border, mm. you know? Um, and so this is something that I've gone into further. Um, and 
what I've also wanted to do, something that me and Dana talk about a lot and have done for a long time, is how we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And so throughout everything that I've written, I've tried to reference as much as possible those who I derive influence from. Um, But something that I also want to think about, and if there's time, I want to offer a poem from Petra on Mother's Heart, which is, if we're on the shoulders of our ancestors, who will be on the shoulders of us? And I'm trying to direct my attention more towards our descendants um, than our ancestors momentarily, for me, at least to widen my gaze. I'm interested in what we will what we will leave, you know. Not not all of us will have children, but we'll all have descendants, mm. you know. When we're part of movements, when we're part of the literary world as well. So um, there's a, a piece that I did once, and it was um, because we are both Lux and I. I think a lot of us, uh, you know, that work in, in literature and, and and that have intersectional feminist principles and have really like learned most of our things. Um, from the school of feminism, uh, which is not actually a school, it's just bodies uh, of work that are passed on and forward. Um, And that was to extract portions of them and be able to quote them in a way that creates a comprehensive poem, where it's not just ours, uh, where our voices do not stand alone, but stand on the shoulders of ancestors. Um, And to be able to, to kind of create a full thought or a full poem by being able to go into the past, into our present Mm. as poets, and then being able to also uh, expand into the future of what we hope our descendants will be able to take from it. Um, I like the concept of having descendants. I think that Mm. is a very interesting thing, especially as a a queer person who's, Mm. you know, constantly having to fight the patriarchy or you know heteropatriarchy in the sense of okay what do i do later what happens Mm. to my voice after i've passed um and it's beautiful to see that young community members are are clasping onto our voices as we've clasped onto others Mm. um and then i think that could be something of the breadth of it all of how all of these things the past the present and the future are interlocked uh, in hopes of you know creating this tidal wave of change Mm. Um, so then it makes me think about our, our process and how we'd right together now coming at it as who we've become Mm. and um, this idea of merging our voices because you know I have this concept of how poetry archives truth Mm. uh, history archives fact right and poetry archives truth archives atmosphere and so the fact is that you are Dana Ash and I am Lisa Lux, somewhat. Yeah. That's actually not even factual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's actually like, check, check the paperwork. Yeah. Right? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> According to them. But the truth <coughs> is that um, that we are who we are to each other yeah. and that we exist actually in a moment with each other and our voices do merge mm. um, naturally because we've had so much influence on each other over the past five, six years of knowing each other, yeah. you know? And whether what we can create can be created through at least some approach of disidentification. Mm. So to create a text together where our voices are not distinguished from one another's, yeah. but they it just becomes one voice, you know? And I'm very interested in this also because um, there's the Cradle community in, yeah. in London who are an abolitionist community. Um, and they wrote a book called Brick by Brick. Now, they're the cradle community. We don't know anybody who's in it. Mm. No any names who's in it. And I think, like, the most political texts also, historically, have to be written by collectives. Yeah. You can't put your name on it so much. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, 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 there's two sides of that coin. 
um, like are you being backed in a corridor and you cannot identify yourself or is there is there a freedom in disidentification yeah. you know um, and I'm kind of very interested in that like that yeah we, we that discussed that last time disidentification and the importance that it it serves for mm. poets especially uh, artists from our region you know yeah. and the kind of the necessity to to disidentify yourself from the work if the work serves some sort of social mm. purpose of some mm. sort and, and something greater than yourself to a certain degree mm. you know? True. Um, because I think that, that that's what we've been taught through capitalism as well is you know put your name on it put your brand on it make sure people mm. know about it make sure people can buy into it um, put your Instagram tag on it, it yeah. make sure they can follow you so yeah. I think all of these things kind of uh, when we say that we want to disassociate or disidentify from particular pieces it's it lays heavily on somewhat of a, like a radical stance against, let's say, the capital, capitalist approach to how you produce uh, and how much of yourself you give um, in order to be recognized or validated as a self in the first place. Right. And, and individualism. Yeah. Also yeah. versus the collective. And he's saying, actually, I'm not an individual. I'm part of many, 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 many people. You know, Angela Davis, we are not a leader, a leaderless movement. We're a leaderful movement. Yes. And that's the whole point is all of us to have that headliner kind of sta standpoint. And when everyone is a headliner, then there's no such thing a headline anymore it's just everybody's there mm. um, it stops being the headline and the subject title and the line. it just becomes a collective group of equally important facts and information that is passed on mm. does it become more difficult to silence this group when it's nearly impossible to pinpoint where the source of inspiration is originating from yeah i mean i think that that that's the strength of community and collective kind of collectivizing one's whether it's art or you know um, just an approach to something. Um, and I think that that's why it's so important to, and you always see poetry in protest. You know, we, none of us remember where half of these chants came from. We don't know the original poet or the original writer, but they ring true and they ring for a very long time and uh, they're never associated with a person, but with a movement. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is something that we all kind of aspire to is to one day alone in our own bed, be able to say that, you know, I, I remember I read that line once and it was actually mine, but now everybody says it, <laughs> you know, but you yeah. never tell the world because it's not about that. It's about your own kind of fulfillment that you were able to give so much of yourself that the rest of the community or the collective could, you know, bounce off of it or feed off of it. You know, you, as well, what you just said it made me think of generosity as well mm. and being generous as an artist and that. I think we might have touched upon this last time, but I think you've just changed the way that I'm looking at that a little bit as well, because before I thought of it in so much as can be prolific, mm. like stop being such a perfectionist, just put your work out there, mm. you know, let it go, be generous with your work. But there's also that idea of be generous with it, like don't own it mm. either. Let it be somehow, you know. Yeah. And there's two, of course, there's, again, I like there is to everything. There's there's nuance to that because some people's work gets stolen and, and, and gets reproduced without their consent. And I'm not saying that that is the ideal situation at all. But if you're coming from a perspective of wanting to be generous with that and let it free, then I think that that is a really radical uh, way to create in the capitalist paradigm. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's only that problem that, that problem when in capitalism when someone steals yeah. it because they want to make, you know, let's say, profit or be able yeah. to expand on it. True. Um, so it's really just in juxtaposition. You're doing something to counter capitalism, and the only way in which it could be taken away from you is through capitalism. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's imperative that I go down the road of of uh, kind of separating 
<clears throat> who I am and who, who what my job is or my, my work is. And I also think it's very funny because uh, it became my job is because of who I am. Um, Haven didn't exist prior to us, so we created something um, that could fit our aims and our goals as far as creatives. Um, and then, of course, with the October Revolution, it kind of morphed into something else. And with the blast, uh, with the Beirut blast, it morphed even more and it just kept going. Um, and I think that that's where I started finding that dissonance. Prior to that, during the revolution, I felt right at um, right at home. You know, um, I think the the fact that there was a leaderless and you know kind of uh, approach to the October Revolution enabled a lot of people to come to the streets. Otherwise, I don't think a lot of people would have interacted as comfortably. Um, and to, to 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 sadly say, yeah, the, the leaders that did emerge were not leaders that we were proud of. Um, there were leaders that were co-opting, so to speak, or riding the wave. Um, and I think that the portion of it that wasn't written, uh, ridden or the portion of it that wasn't hijacked by all of these uh, people that wanted to kind of take it into politics um, was very minimal, <laughs> amount, the amount of people that didn't want to become politicians in the same system. A lot of us on the streets wanted to abolish the system. We wanted, uh, I, I, when the voting happened in May last year, everybody was like, yeah, why are you voting? It's pointless. I'm like, listen, you have two options. Either you vote or you burn it down. Like you stop pretending that, uh, well, our vote doesn't count, but I'm also not going to do anything. So you've got to make a decision. Are we going to burn down parliament? Are we going to go down that road of nonstop civil unrest, disobedience all the way? Or are we going to say that this is the system we've been given and we're going to have to work around it? I obviously would have loved to be the frontliner in parliament, but I would have evidently been the only one because everybody was fine just voting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yesterday, a friend of mine was over at my house, Elsa, uh, who also we had a poetry uh, show, small podcast together. Um, and she, we were talking about like our, uh, our ability to kind of separate ourselves from what's going on in Lebanon. Um, and she said, yeah, it's, it's difficult because, you know, I hate the political level um, and it should be more street level. And I looked at her and I was like, there should be no other level. The fact that we have so many levels, <laughs> this concept of if you're in this sphere, you're not allowed in this one. Or if you have an opinion here, then you're allowed, not allowed to interact here because there is this kind of set unspoken hierarchy, whether it be in a revolution or otherwise, uh, is only to the detriment of whatever you're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, and this whole concept of, you know, who is our leader uh, is kind of belittling to the people that are on the street as if they have no singular thought that could you know, achieve their own means. They need a leader, someone to give them direction um, or else they're just going to be completely uh, kind of flaying in the wind. And I didn't see that in, in, in the revolution. I saw graduates, um, and I say this like that because really graduates, people that walked into the streets that were racist um, and then walked out, you know, anti-racist, the people that went in that were homophobic and that walked out with friends that were queer, you know. Um, and I think that in of itself, people really underestimated the social revolution that happened um, and the impact that it had on our day-to-day -day kind of interactions with people. Um, so, yeah, I think the disassociation is very important, but at the same time, we need to be able to be open enough to the people that were not involved in whatever kind of uh, thought process we initially had. Um, and allow them to be just as equally, you know, uh, influential. Influ influential. <laughs> so I haven't finished my Ooh, cup of she. coffee. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> <laughs>
And the first one is what I was talking to you about earlier, which is poetically. So fragmentation in poetry has always been radical. It's always been queer because it's the incompleteness. It's the incomplete sentences. It's not being able to say the thing, so suggesting the thing and moving around the thing and having more held in the white space on the page, um, having that empty space so activated and, and loaded. And speaking in fragmentation, I mean, it's historically been a very lesbian practice as well. Um, it's cold in some ways. And it's a practice that I want to explore more and more because there is, as well as a beauty, there's a safety in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in, in that, in the political safety of, of fragmentation. So then let me apply that to the movement. So there will always be a formation if there is a successful action or movement. There has to be a formation. There isn't a, a leader, there's people equally playing different roles that are seemingly very fragmented. You know, someone who is very far removed from you, whose name you don't necessarily know, is doing a bunch of uh, uh, research work um, or, or legal research work or, the, or somebody else somewhere else is um, preparing uh, the the gear that you're going to need for protest, you know, and then there's someone else who's uh, timing uh, the, the streets and how long it takes to move across the streets so that you can do like an action or, a, um, or an attack uh, where necessary. And this type of fragmentation, I think, is very beautiful because it is a bunch of individuals who are seemingly fragmented but who are part of a whole. Now, it's the exact same thing with the poetics, right? It's a bunch of very fragmented... Uh, words, phrases that actually do come together as a whole, but you're not supposed to see them as a whole. If you see them as a whole, then you've seen too much, you know, you know too much, you know. So I'm getting more and more interested in in formation and as a as a Form, formation as a methodology in solidarity and how much more attention how much attention needs to be paid to that because mm. we spoke last time didn't we about who can speak where and yeah. who can speak on what and i guess one of the major problems is that everybody thinks that it's their role to speak and it's 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 okay i don't want to be the person who comes in and cusses everybody out this morning i'm not in that mood but it's people are not being shown how many various different ways there are to be part of something. You don't just have to use your voice, actually, all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can use any other skill you've got and shut the fuck up, yeah. actually, you know? That really just, like, falls into, like, please, white men, stop speaking. Kind stop of speaking. Yeah, um. yeah. <laughs> exactly. You don't need to talk. That's So I wrote something... For, uh, for, um, it's very much a draft... <laughs> yeah. but life is just a draft ain't, that, ain't that true really turn it in until the end oh yeah <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> and then you reach god and you're like sir i did not do my homework yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i'm charming so <laughs> exactly ain't that the truth <laughs> uh, would you would you share it with us yeah please do remember it's a draft but yes um Honey, we all come armed 
when we tend to the candle. And there's some of those out there with the light skin who have got wrists made for coughing. And some got large hands to stain with the ink of circling ghosts, cupped palms of purple pools, so the brother with the pen can write until the future knows what happened here. Cooking pot, that always needs a friend to stir, wooden spoon, only the hungry get imprisoned and ain't no one ever got released and turned down a meal. We need the big voice in the back, the comrade with a street map, who's walking 40 seconds behind to pick up the overclothes of the frontliners, stripped to jumpsuits and attack, cis with the legal degree, guiding 10 steps ahead, my guy on the supply chain fixing up the gear we will weaponize against the regime's flags, Fire extinguishers, fire, flares and bats, ladders, fire, roadblocks, how we burn in tires is his question to ask. And the teacher, classroom kind, slanting the syllabus so it leans towards the horizon. The one with the knowledge embedded, the one with the knowledge embodied. The one with travel bags of photographs that have the storm told and the one with knowledge Learnt. Bring paranoia and a flute. Learn how to keep the secrets of a movement. Sewing kit, Arabic, mathematics, translate, annihilate, and darn blankets too. Lend a tent, offer a room. Don't ask a real name when a code name will do. Hand out water at the protest, onions at the riot. Hand out pamphlets and share your money freely with the streets. Carry bags of rice, write a song, occupy a billboard. Visit the political prisoner with halawa and a piece of blue sky wrapped in packaging. Security will approve. Write in pencil for anything worth writing should be easily removed when the raids come. Yeah, everyone is invited. Everyone got a role. But when the mic sets a light, your silence might protect the one next to you. And if you have nothing else to do, well, someone should always stay awake with the candle. So is, obviously I'm riffing off Audrey Lords. Yeah, your silence will not protect you. And your silence will not protect you. But sometimes, yes, white sir with the voice. Mm. Your silence might protect the person next to you, you know, and I think that it is this um, analysis that we do of who who is speaking when and why and what is it that they're speaking of. Um, because, yeah, we all need to talk and we all need to say the things that are going on. But if you're actually in any way uncertain or it is not your embodied knowledge or this movement is something that you are new to or learning and we're always all learning the movements and we're always all going to trip up on something that we say and potentially hurt or put someone next to us in a dangerous position and that's what we have to really watch ourselves with <coughs> like yeah. in a world so full of surveillance right now and not just surveillance but also so there's two sides of it right because there's surveillance there's like watch what you say when you say it Watch what you text, who you text it to. Watch how encrypted your phone is because our phones get taken in by the police, you know? Like, 
really, really focus on these things, not because it's uh, cute, it's 2023 and we're all supposed to be like, you know, in, encrypting our shit. Like understand why you're doing that. Like you're protecting your community when you when you really, really, really uh, uh, consider surveillance pretty consistently. But the other side of that is you're also protecting people from the bullshit that might come out your mouth as well. Sometimes it's not your place to speak because someone just does not need to hear that today, you know? Or someone does not need that particular narrative bringing up, does not need these questions being asked, does not need your mansplaining um, of, uh, of a black British woman's experience, for example, you know? Sometimes you just need to be quiet in order to protect the people next to you. So there's two sides of it, because obviously I ain't ever going to go against anything Algie Lord said. Mm-hmm. And her essay is, is, um, carries way more nuance than the title does, of course. Yeah. Um, but I sometimes think she has these really great uh, punchline titles for her essays. And so I always kind of enjoy like writing, writing against the simplicity of them, but only doing so to encourage people to read the full essay of hers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes to Audre Lorde and, and your silence uh, will not protect you, I think it makes sense in, in the context of the front lines. It's obviously very different for us in the, in the region and how we kind of perceive our safety as being something that we do need to actively uh, work on protecting. Um, so for, for me, Masalan, it's about coming out or queerness or existing within these spaces. And like when you started, when the moment you say Audrey Lloyd, Anna, like automatically popped up on courage and, mm. and what it means like to actually protect the people around you um, by denying a part of yourself mm-hmm. to a certain extent from the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, comes a lot in the context of queerness in the region of uh, I, w- I cannot be as public as I'd like to be to a certain extent because mm-hmm. I do have to protect the people that, you know, let's say my partner. I can't be so public um, because it might fall into the wrong hands and they know that, let's say, we're roommates or that we work together or mm-hmm. that we're, you know, we went out that one time camping or whatever and that automatically connects something that could put this person in jeopardy. Um, so a lot of the silence is also a large portion of courage, you know, uh, mm. kind of eliminating a portion of yourself to protect those around you. 100%. You, I, I don't know if you say it directly in courage. And when we talk about courage, we're talking about the film uh, that was created by Dana and um, a, a team of uh, artists, either within Haven or Haven adjacent. Mm. Um, and within that film... Or, or at least in our conversations around it, you talk about protecting, standing outside the closet door to protect it. <clears throat> and of course, you completely dismantle the idea of the closet yeah, as well as, as something that exists in any way, shape or form in the Arab world. But this idea of like protecting the door. <clears throat> um, and it's exactly that. It's this idea of I don't need to assert my identity in a certain place for my freedom if it then impacts my partner or jeopardizes actually, you know. uh, yeah yeah impacts jeopardizes puts her in direct threat um of a number of things yeah. and yeah it's it's learning and, and i even realized that the the other the other day you know i was in a public place um not in not in lebanon i was outside of lebanon but but somewhere else in the region um where the laws are really uh strict really really um uh frightening really and I passingly said something in conversation in a public space that was about where I used the word lesbian. Mm. And I realised what I'd done like immediately. And that's what I mean by your silence will protect mm. the person next to you. That I, 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 it's training myself to, to like be more contextual and be able mm. to, to, to catch your tongue. So like we, we do it, we all do it because we, we, 
we code switch as well. Mm. Like we move between our different communities and different spaces and, and what have you. And um, We definitely have to, coming from this part of the world and navigating this part of the world, but also the other sort of micro cultures that we're a part of, um, also because both of you are very productive, prolific people, you're, you're out there in society, you know, you're part of networks and movements, social movements, artistic movements, creative movements. So you have this, let's say, inspiration, motivation to, to be part of things and to create. At the same time, you have a deep sense of responsibility. You, it's clear that you have a responsibility towards your community. Uh, at the same time, you, you, know, you have to balance that with the creative part of yourself that requires a sense of freedom and liberation to uh, create, to create poetry. And how do, you, how do you navigate that? How do you balance that sense of responsibility with the liberated sense of yourself that poetry requires? Um, courage stayed in the drawer for a very long time. Um, still, like, uh, it's not, it doesn't get screened. Um, I mean, it's probably one of uh, my favorite things that I've ever written, one of the most incredible things I've ever worked on with some of the most incredible artists as far as collaboration is concerned. Um, and we all put our heart and soul into it. And all of us effectively uh, hit it, hit it from the world, hit it from people that um, might hurt us because of it. Because to a certain extent, we still have to be quite aware of your, your, you know, your surroundings. Could you tell us a little bit about that piece? About Courage? Yeah. Uh, so Courage is um, an experimental short film talking about how we navigate the closet in the region. Um, and it basically puts into context that we, and a part of it is, uh, it starts off with asking questions of like, uh, have you ever actually experienced this? It, it goes, have you learned to navigate the labyrinth, to anticipate the good darkness? Have you learned to love, to fight, to hold her dear close and to hold her equally as far? Uh, have you learned to be afraid yet to be brave nonetheless? So it's always a question of really this constant balance and this weighing of, um, the swaying of not just needs, but expectations and responsibilities and all of these things. And I think when it comes to being an activist or a queer person from the region, we are extremely uh, <laughs> well balanced, you know, to a certain degree. I'm, I'm very politically out. Uh, I s talk about things very openly, um, but I have the heightened anxiety constantly whenever I post anything. Uh, there's always a panic attack. There's a lot of deleting. <laughs> there's a lot of, no, 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 never mind, forget that. Um, and part of this is, I think, is, is the value of silence. Um, and that's actually a line, have you learned the value of silence, the security of secrets? Um, and the, the, the film continues on to kind of discuss how, you know, our privilege is our closet. Uh, where it opens on to, what we do with it, when we uh, come out and if we come out and how we come out and to how many people. Uh, because even the concept of coming out, it's kind of like you have to go out with a megaphone. Like, no, I could just tell one person and that is enough for me, at least in this political context, to feel safer and still to be a little bit more uh, towards that sense of liberation that you're talking about. Um, and it, they, they work hand in hand, I mean, and they pull against each other, which I think is the, the most difficult thing of, of being a creative to a certain extent in these sociopolitical contexts is, is where, what part of myself do I have to sacrifice in order for this piece to be created? Um, and that was another thing that Haven had worked on for a while, which was uh, an exhibition called uh, Radical, which is Choice and Consequence. And it asked 38 uh, different artists really to, to, uh, to create a piece on the basis of the choices they make 
uh, and to really evaluate if the choice they made is based on the consequence, you know, if it's at all kind of impacted by the consequence. And did you do this piece and then kind of edit it a little bit because you know the consequence is going to be much greater than, than you are able to handle at any given point. Um, and most of the work we've really kind of put into it has been a reflection of our own self, you know, any kind of issues that we're having on a personal creative level as, as a community, uh, kind of we present it and then we all try to find some kind of, I don't want to say solace, but like solace in the attempt um, and hoping that by being able to kind of ricochet some of the information off of each other, some of the possibilities to a certain extent, uh, that we can be able to, let's say, uh, delve enough to feel that sense of liberation um and for me silence has always been something because i'm really out in comparison to the rest of the team that was you know working on courage some were out some are not queer um and the things that we kind of just kept kind of coming back to uh, is what is freedom of expression uh, and and where is that level uh, where my freedom of expression could actually be an implication on my freedom, period, on my existence as a whole. And, and where did those two, how can they coexist and can they even? Um, so, yeah. I'd love to talk about that and also uh, hear your response to that. I was wondering if you wanted to read something from Courage. Sure. I love, uh, I love Courage, so I'm always ready to read it. Uh, I'll just, I guess, I usually always read uh, Act 7, um, for some reason, and, and I think it's just because it's like this culmination. Uh, it's a total of eight acts, so, and it was supposed to be a play originally, that's why the act thing is involved, and I was just like, we're not changing that. We're continuing with an act. <laughs> so, um, act seven. I was rushed out of the closet so quickly by my family that I forgot to pack. They forced me to deal with the consequences of never going back. They forced me to defy them. We say we must sacrifice, we must compromise. We must, we must, we must, in order to love more freely. We must, in order to procure a semblance of our fantasy. We must, so that we do not hesitate when, sh when faced with the sharpened knife of ignorance and hate, so that we may strike back with fervor and community. But I will not disrupt the dinner table, the dinner gathering with the wrong conversation. We've all had our crosses to bear, our crescents to uphold, our strength to muster and a heavy heart to overcome. We all have different wounds that have opened up and have spat us out. When some come out, they get kicked out. Many others, most of us, we get locked in. I fear that my community doesn't believe in my closet. I'm afraid that my community has become global, as if one size fits all. Do I not belong to the community if my confidant is the silence? If I am not out, am I not equal? If I am not visible, will I not be seen? I try to atone my closet to privilege. One of the privileges we have is to design how our closet expands, how it retracts, how it liberates, when it secludes and when it isolates. It's our choice, when the doors fling open or when the walls are reinforced. It's our prerogative and our intuition that sets the pace for our safety, for our security, for a warm embrace most times, oftentimes, fleeting. So yes, my privilege is the closet the security found in privilege. My privilege now outranks precursors and opinions. We are proud, we are persistent, but our battle doesn't end when the doors come unhinged. We don't come out once or twice. 
We come out to every glaring eye, to every judgmental neighbor, to an opinionated aunt, to an overbearing uncle with a temper and a gun. Sometimes, I want to hold tighter onto my religion so that God may save me from himself. Sometimes, I bind myself to bind love to my body. Our closet moves with us and away from us, away from his honor to house ours. It's not a fixed place. It remodifies to hold us and our secrets. Over and over again, it shifts and molds itself into the shape of our fear and into the shape of our relief. It is a conflict and a contradiction. But it is our choice where the doors open onto. It is our choice if we were to open onto this world or onto the next, onto this neighborhood or onto another city, onto this one friend or onto our entire family. This is Act 7. <laughs> Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Did you want to say something? Or? Um, I could not have written Courage without community. I mean, my experience is very different than theirs. Um, and they were so giving when it came to whether it was the stories or the emotions or the vulnerabilities that we shared with one another. Um, Courage is dedicated to those people and, and inspired and written by and for those people. And it's, it's not possible to perceive courage as a singular act. It is a communal, collective kind of... Because uh, I don't think I have enough courage in me without community. Uh, to a certain extent, I'd rather find a rock and hide underneath it when, when it comes down to some of the things that we have to endure and face. Um, but luckily, we're not facing it alone. So I do draw a lot of strength from the people around me in the sense that I must go on. Even if I'm feeling down, even if the cops are two seconds away, if they're no matter what the situation is, I have to continue because so many people need me to continue and rely on me. And at the same time, I rely on so many others um, that it would be uh, kind of ill-advised to kind of forego all of the, the strength that we've been able to bring together uh, and just say, oh, well, I'm going to care about my individual kind of thing. So it's always that, I think. Uh, there is no such thing as courage without community. And there's no such thing as liberation without community, in the words of Audre Lorde. You know? <laughs> so. Thank you. Uh, it's, a, I think, a very pertinent and important message for today as well with online presence and mm. online personalities. And there's a lot of pressure to... Participate in this sort of public, very public discourse. But what, you, what you're talking about and queerness uh, originates as a very personal, internal discourse, mm. and that bridge is it's can be as threatening as it can be liberating. Yeah, and it's refreshing to to hear something like that. Actually, thank you, Lux. Would you like to respond? So in two ways, because first of all, I want to touch upon that and this idea also, because queerness is really our way of navigating, mm. right? It's a navigation tool. And when people use it as a noun, which less so happens here, you see more in the West, mm. this like use of it as an identifier and that, that immediately makes them radical and mm. immediately makes them able to talk about 
um, how oppressed they are, <laughs> you know. Um, and and therefore they they create work based on it because then that work will sell. And you see this a lot. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a friend in Berlin last night on the phone and she was saying that there's just a lot of poets that go up and they, they, they're, they're a queer poets so they want to talk about queer sex. And it's like, uh, if, if that's what you think liberation is, then then bravo, I'm happy for you, sure. But queerness embodies, as much as it is about the community, it's also about a communal sense of uh, all of the different aspects of our lives as well. So it's political, it's borders, it's all of these different things, you know, it's it's policy, it's, it's not about sexuality uh, strictly, it's about how we perceive the world as a, uh, as something that we see through my optician recently told me, this is the best di diagnosis I've ever got. He's like, you need, <laughs> the reason you need glasses is because you don't look at, you don't see the, th the thing, you see through it. Like you see beyond it. So your eyes aren't adjusting right. They're mm. like looking, they're looking like through things. <laughs> and I was like, I wanted to tell him like, it's because I'm queer, bitch. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of seeing beyond what is static, you know, in society somehow. Um, and looking at all of the possibilities and queerness is possibility. And you can't come up with possibility without community as well in that sense, because it has to be a communal conversation. Where do we go from here, you know? Mm. And then I also wanted to talk on this idea of the work you create and whether and how it can compromise um, community in that way. And I think I've come to a point where I'm exploring more and more with fiction. So the next book that will come out is a short story collection. And the reason being, I've, I've been devouring novels lately. Um, I, I, I just read theory for a really long for a really long time, so I was finishing my finishing my masters. And this winter, I'm just eating novels. And I think I'm really appreciating how much I'm learning through the novel in a, in a really non-dogmatic way, in a way that allows you to untether it from the author. So why I'm bringing that up is because I feel I'm going into a stage where I'm more willing to obscure myself from the work in order to protect family members. I mean, the whole reason that I changed my name is, was a way to protect family already um, from my outward, my very like outward, very outspoken um, voice when I was in my 20s, you know. Um, but it's about that protection. It's about being able to talk about relationships. It's about being able to talk about the people around me. It's about being able to talk about the movements I'm a part of um, without having to put anybody in danger or immortalise their, their activity within something that they don't want to be immortalised in once you put it into publishing. Um, but then there's also the other side of it, which is uh, sometimes you do just want to like say, write the thing when it's when it's not about you and it doesn't... And, and maybe it's only you that it puts in danger. Like, my lawyer really doesn't like me. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to write an article on this thing. And she's like, well, you're on trial, so maybe don't do that. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to write the thing. And so that is constantly thinking about weighing up, okay, this could affect me, but could it affect my community members? If it's just me, am I willing to make the sacrifice? What is the sacrifice? You start measuring things, like, a lot. You start, like, finding all these different metrics to measure um, what you're saying and, and whether you're actually going to say it or how you're going to say it and how you're going to obscure it somehow. Mm. That's why it's, it's beautiful for us to collaborate with uh, poets and creators from this part of the world and our part of the world because understanding that level of the, the complexity of that sense of responsibility, 
you know, and it's, it's just, it's so powerful. It can be overwhelming, but it can also be, as you said, empowering. You, you couldn't write a certain piece without the community. Yeah. And there's, so you're gaining a lot from the community at the same time. You're aware of that. And it's not as individualistic or selfish as perhaps developing a creative career in the West might be, mm-hmm. you know, which would be far less uh, perhaps you know, controversial or circumstantial, although you are on trial mm-hmm. and maybe because you mentioned it, maybe you want to just explain a little bit how your uh, how you ended up in right, court. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it dates back to... <laughs> um, if it has something to do with the, you know, the ideas that you're living and working with. Yeah, exactly. I mean... <clears throat> So I mentioned at the start when I introduced myself that I'm part of Palestine Action and I've kind of tended all of my act- energy for activism towards this singular, uh, not singular, but this uh, particular goal-oriented um, uh, movement right now um, because I was having a lot of like split attention between doing many, many different things in the world of activism. And so now I'm, quite, I'm really concentrating on that. And yeah, I mean, we the aim is there's... Uh, company called Elbit Systems. They are the biggest um, supplier of, uh, for the Israeli military. And their operations are, it is no surprise to anyone, but uh, illegal by international law. However, they function from the UK because there is a loophole mm-hmm. in the British law that allows them to function from the UK. Um, so they had 10 sites across the UK um, we've been attacking those sites for two years. They now have eight sites across the UK. Um, it means that a lot of our, you know, a lot of our actionists and a lot of our activists in the movement, we're, we're dealing quite a lot with legal cases. All there's a lot of trials coming up. Mine already began. It began in October. It became a very because it's a political trial. It's became more complex. So I'm still on trial. Um, so I go back in April to continue. Um, and what else, I mean, what else can I say about it? It's, there's a lot because there's so many questions to ask about effectivity and, and, and things like that. But one major, I mean, we've managed to get them to shut down two locations because it just wasn't, suitable for them to continue doing business from those sites um, and through the legal process we've also managed through freedom of information acts to have brought into court um, exactly what it is that they're exporting lists of what they're exporting from where to israel um, so there's a lot that happens kind of in the nuance as well so you find yourself in court that also can be an opportunity unfortunately for me it's not because my judge is completely against us so it's very clear which way this is going for us but uh, uh, so be it and um, I mean I would never you know it's interesting because you know people worry if you're on trial especially family friends you know how you doing with the trial blah 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 this is not going to be the the last time I'm on trial in my life let's you know like it's not going to be it's a it's 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 a warm up bitches like I, they can they can take a lot from me, but I will never not be part of the pro-Palestinian movement. I will never ever not in my life be fighting for a free Palestine ever ever. 
that's been all in all of us since birth. That's been in all of us since before our births. You know, we're born into that. So they, when our hearts are this strong, there's not an awful lot they can do to make us afraid. You know, and now, right now we do have some uh, prisoners who have been kept on remand. They did a, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this actually, but let's just say they did a really, really, really big action, which was um, <laughs> just big. <laughs> it was big. Circumstantial. It was so good, but yeah. yeah. So they're they're being they've actually been kept on remand now for over two two months. Now we're coming up to they've been kept in custody. Um, so it's very interesting seeing the different ways that people respond to being imprisoned directly following action because it's it's very unexpected that they keep you for two months mm. in jail directly mm. after. Mm. Um, they should really be releasing them on bail, but they're not. Um, Anyway, I could talk about it for a long time and probably shouldn't, so... No, of course. Thank you for sharing that. First of all, you realize how many things we have in common. Mm. Um, so I, I know I wrote this, you're like, you, you changed your name to protect your family mm. from your outwardness. I, I've changed my name to, to protect myself from my family. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you will not have my success. You treated me like shit. <laughs> you know, so it was always like, the, I, I love that we, we both kind of made decisions in our life. Um, for different reasons, but have kind of led us to the same outcome. Um, yeah. And sorry, I'm just on that. It's the first time I think of like Lux and Ash. Uh-huh. Yeah, they kind of come together because Lux is light. It's almost like this fa- the, like the fire and there's the ash. And there's yeah, the, just, I'm just like The dead. two things but like <laughs> together. But Ash is also what you put on your face yeah. like his war paint as well, right? You know, like there's a lot can be, is done with Ash. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and another thing is that, you know, we both had our fair share of court. Um, luckily, mine ended differently than yours um, in the sense of like... Uh, they were able to kind of nip it in the bud. Um, but I think that that also is like just a, a reflection of, of what happens when you're actually in a position of being able to do something and then effectively doing it and how the system will re- react. Uh, I don't want to say it reacts, it punishes. You know, our, our punishment is much greater um, than the act itself sometimes, you know. Um, so I just wanted to say that. If we want to talk about uh, so I have an entire piece and it's actually just called uh, January uh, June 4th frequent defect because <laughs> that's, that's where I was performing it um, right. I, I think this piece in particular is uh, was me kind of uh, headbutting with the fact that I grew up in the states mm-hmm. um, and how much self-hate that kind of inflicted in me as an Arab like I hated being an Arab I identified as a Mexican in high school because they made me into a terrorist in middle school mm-hmm. um, and it's just more on kind of trying to find oneself in identity or what is the concept of identity and who defines what are the categories and boxes you kind of have to fit into. Uh, and when does it kind of just start becoming a way that they are kind of picking at you uh, rather than you be able to mold yourself whole. Um, so, yeah, I think that this kind of... Let's hear it. There were days when the revolution was close. For once, the revolution was outside of me felt like me. It was ready, anxious, and disobedient. But this is a premeditated notion of bliss, a recollection of times past, of moments that permeate and seduce, standing shoulder to shoulder with bodies I had once abandoned. But holding hands in the revolution differs. The streets welcome rage, yet shy away from warmth and intimacy. Who I am and who I want to be are two very different notions. Why I fight and why you don't have to are two very different notions. Why your borders enable freedom and mine hold me captive are two very different notions. Why I do what I do and why you have to do very little 
are very different notions. But the sobering thing about living is that it ends. But a struggle is an endless knot, weaving and beckoning arms, shoulders, and chests. Whether you choose to suffer or not, choice cannot hinder the outcome. No matter how hard you try, the outcome is unfazed. Just as blood may boil, revolutions never simmer. What is freedom to those that have it? What is freedom for those that are complicit? To those that deny it? Is your freedom the freedom from oppression while my freedom is the freedom from you? But the true secret to life can be found at the very end of it. While the struggle lingers on the soil covering the grave. While the struggle wrestles with the dust hovering above the martyr. Never leaving room for forgetting. The kind of conversation between the sword and the neck. But we do not share the same happy moments. We never could. Your happy moments are at the expense of my obedience. Your freedom at the expense of my sovereignty. Land and body stripped, your riches at my expense. Your walls at the expense of my home, your road at the expense of my movement, while your joys at the expense of my silence. We, not do not, we do not transcend time, but rather have created the shackles holding us within it. Shackles bound to violence and to repetition. I was always a symbol you attempted to erase. A garb torn and burned. The stitching might have come undone, yet I am unmoved. There were days when the revolution was close. Shoulder to shoulder. Bodies bound to land. Liberation bound to death. That shoulder I leaned on as shields bombarded my chest. That shoulder I leaned on as the batons rained down on our heads. That shoulder I remember the most of the revolution. That fist that left the mark. Sometimes we chanted, but not always. Many times we just screamed, cried, and mumbled. And most times we just could not fathom. To what end is this cruelty? Nonetheless, shoulder to shoulder, that was my happy moment. Shoulder to shoulder, because that day we had faked our way into winning. We had many conversations in the squares. We talked about it, about liberation, about the concept of freedom, how much it hadn't belonged to us. How much nothing we had owned belonged to us, not freedom nor the loss of it. But the sobering thing about living is that it ends. So whenever you are lost, look for the shoulder at the front lines. Do not let rage simmer or be in vain, because they have no shortage of hate, so let yours boil. I grew up in post-9-11 America, where terrorists come in all shades of white, we are not oppressed, we are smothered with white bedsheets and vegan boots stomping across our necks. I grew up where notions of freedom were chiseled and carved into our backs. I grew up in post-9-11 America, where nooses decorated the willow trees as she wept, and railroads were built by breaking bones on bludgeoned backs. I grew up in post-9-11 America, where they erected monuments as we stood shoulder to shoulder. They idolized founding fathers as we mourned the children and mothers they'd stolen. I was always expected to find in myself the strength to move on, to agree, to disagree. This is a premeditated notion of bliss, of who defines freedom. When those with privilege proclaim their suffering, what happens to those without? The lullaby of the masked maker, the lulling of the pigment, the lulling of the bludgeoned. We are the duplicity of treaties that were only struck to strike us down. We are the silent roar of liberation the front lines and the friends of mourning. We are the golden dome and the ports to the storm. 
We are those that had no bread to eat, yet always had enough to feed. We are not the people that were given freedom. We are the people that will take it. What my friend says, the sobering thing about living is that it ends. I respond. Every day I have come to ask myself, am I acting in a way that is worthy of my ancestors? And am I a worthy ancestor? So that should I cease, in the crossfire of living, I shall know I was born, brood, and potent. I shall know I did nothing but hot iron purpose, oh, sunlight. That is, if the baton passes hands with few fowls and good grace, may I be your ancestor. Young fire, spark, Dreaming of the flame, may I be your ancestor as the wood was mine, as the tree hung dry, dying. So the tree hung dry, dying. And when the tree hung dry, dying. So that the smoke may one day speak symbols into a clear night. You have been listening to Barra Digital, Episode 2, airing first on Radio Alhara. Today's episode was the first in a two-part series featuring revolutionary poets Dana Ash and Lisa Lux. Their audiobook can be found on the Barakunan webshop and the Barakunan page on partner platforms. Yeah, well, when you started uh, reading that, there was a number of different directions that I wanted to bounce off of you, actually. Mm. But I, I, this idea of being misplaced and displaced and identity and has pretty much always come from our parents having made a decision at some point and us being the descendant, not just of them, but of their decisions mm. as well that they made. Um, and we both can understand that experience of growing up in post 9-11 when we were just reaching our teen years in the West mm. as well, uh, having very different experiences of that. Obviously, you were in the US and, and what have you. And also, I, um, I'm mixed heritage, so I managed to kind of like pat a certain whiteness mm. Over, I, I was I was a closeted Arab is how I call it. Yeah. I managed to be a closeted Arab because of the shame and the being called terrorist and blah 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 blah. Yeah. Being ashamed of the way that my dad spoke and being scared that he'd like meet other parents and like reveal us and stuff like yeah. that, you know. So this thing, this I really related to. But there's but then there's this idea of of what it what it means that what our what our decisions then mean when you're standing sh shoulder to shoulder and who you're seeking and who you're looking for yeah. in order to stand shoulder to shoulder and what that decision then will make for the descendants uh, of us and it being the the, the young community members who yeah. we're we're raising through our visions of life as well you know